Thresholds Radio with your host, John Stevenson. Recording the UFO activity. And there in the darkness, on the ground, knocking on the walls, something crawling. The ghost towards the ground. Why? Oh my god, are you seeing this? A formation forming. You're listening to Thresholds Radio. I'm Anthony Kay. With me is John Stevenson. On tonight's show, we have Amelia Cotter, Michael Clean. Also, we have a tribute to Richard Crow, who just passed away. That and much more on Thresholds Radio. We'll be right back with Amelia Cotter and Michael Clean right after this quick commercial break. TheEdgeOnAir.com wants to invite you to be abducted. Tune in Friday night starting at 10 p.m. for Thresholds Radio. Host John Stevenson is your guide through the realm of the paranormal with an hour-long radio show sure to give you the heebie-jeebies. Check out UFO-Info.com to learn more. It's Thresholds Radio every Friday night at 10 p.m. on TheEdgeOnAir.com. Welcome back. With us right now is Michael Clean and Amelia Cotter. How are you two doing today? Hey, John. I'm doing great. I'm glad to be on, as always. I'm doing great. Thanks, John. Mm, that's good. Well, first off, we got to start the show with a little sad news. Uh, Richard Crow passed away, which I know you both know, but uh, he was uh, the first ghost tour person ever. He started in, what was it, the earlier to mid-70s, wasn't it, Mike? I think it was 1973 was his first tour. He, he started this whole thing before anyone else. He was the original one, and he had just passed away Wednesday night. Yeah, I mean, you've got to give credit where credit's due. A lot of the original research came from him. I mean, a lot of other books about ghost stories in Chicago just simply rewrote what he has written before. So, I mean, it was just huge, and he was pretty influential for myself, too. Uh, I think it was in 1991 when I was about nine or ten years old, I saw him do a talk at Oakton Community College in Des Plaines, and that put that seed in my mind that one day I wanted to go visit these places. And, of course, you know, it was reading about Ursula's uh, book that I finally did go, but he kind of put the germ in my head to go and do that. But wasn't it, was it his book, the Chicago Street Guide to the Paranormal, or... Yeah, that I think that's the only book he ever wrote. He he wasn't really an author, you know. He was this tour guide and lecturer. Right. But I guess he just had this book to sell on talks and things like that. Uh, but it was re- very good. Amelia, you're a Chicago transplant. You're a Chicagoan now, I know. But uh, I'm sure you've heard of Richard Crow too, Evan. He's kind of a legend in this town. Definitely. Um, even you know, growing up in Maryland, not having even lived in in Chicago yet, I had heard of Richard Crow. You know, he's one of the major the major voices of the paranormal and I never had the pleasure of meeting him unfortunately but I had heard all about him I had read up on a lot of the cases things that he had done studies and his tours of course and uh, it's sad it's sad that I didn't get that chance yeah he was well known I've she, I've talked to him numerous times and have had him on the show before but I've never met him in person but uh, 
he was an amazing historian too. I mean, that was his main thing, but uh, he's the person that started all the ghost lore and the tours and all that stuff in Chicago. He, he was, I think, most famously on that episode of Unsolved Mysteries about Resurrection Mary. Well, exactly. He, Resurrection Cemetery was one of his most favorite haunts. But now he's going to be buried there. I know. That's actually kind of neat, I think. I think he'd love that. I'm sure that's why it was arranged that way. He's actually going to be there now. That's amazing. Yeah, he was a legend. If you, if you want, I can read a little bit about what Ursula Bielski wrote about him, which I thought was very nice. Oh, yeah, that'd be fine. Go ahead. Well, she wrote on Facebook. She had this whole note, but I, I pulled about two really good paragraphs from it. And she writes that uh, beloved Chicago ghost hunter Richard T. Crow has passed on to the world he talked about for generations with an unmistakable voice and a storyteller's gift. Despite fluctuating economies, the legendary Crow never ceased to draw a crowd. An imposing figure, his voice matched his frame, and his talent for telling a tale sent his guests home generation after generation, remembering his name and his stories. Indeed, the stories that Crow told were the very first ghost stories ever collected in Chicago. For before he was a professional tour guide, Crow was first a folklorist with a master's degree in English literature from Chicago's DePaul University. As a folklorist, his professional work was to collect the stories of the local people, something he'd been doing his whole life, and wonderfully. Richard's ghost stories created the framework for what has evolved into one of the richest collections of ghost lore in the nation, and those stories will remain the golden core of it all. I think that's a very nice summary, and in fact, if you go back, what, what I like about his writing is you read other accounts of the stories, like there's that story of Resurrection Mary where uh, a police officer sees her gripping the bars of the gate, you know, and then they had the famous bent bars. I remember that. I grew up around that legend. I used to go out there and check it out. I'm from that generation. Yeah, well, most retellings of that story simply say a police officer was there. Well, Richard Crow knew the police officer. You know, he, his his name is actually in his book, and it's like that for so many of these things. I mean, he knew the actual people who were involved in these stories. Well, he's one of the first people I ever knew that talked about Bachelor's Grove. I knew of Bachelor's Grove when I was a kid growing up, but he's one of the first people I saw on TV talking about it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, th I think that there were... A, a few books that mentioned ghosts, you know, in Chicago. Like, I, I think Bachelor's Grove was in a book that was published in the 1960s, but it didn't, you know, it didn't gain so much fame until uh, until Richard started publicizing it. Well, it's, uh, it, like I say, it's a sad day that he passed. He was a big part of Chicago here, but I think he's where he wants to be now. He enjoyed this stuff, and without sounding rude, I think he's going to be great on the other side because he's going to try to come back. I guarantee it. <laughs> yeah, I always thought maybe now when we go to Archer Avenue, we'll run into him sometime. So I say him and Resurrection Mary are going to be hanging out now. <laughs> Over at Chet's Melody Lounge. <laughs> exactly, and I don't mean that in a, in a rude way. I'm being serious. I think I actually think it's kind of a cool thing. Yeah, he'll be over there collecting stories and giving giving tours of the living to all of his ghost friends. <laughs> yeah, there you go. He'll be yeah, he'll be doing. He'll be the first person that starts the what would it be the non paranormal tours where he he walks around with the ghost <laughs> the normal, showing them to the scary the people. Tour. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. What uh, what's going on with you, Amelia? Boy, is that a question. Um, <laughs> well, 
Well, maybe we should introduce Amelia first for oh. people who aren't as familiar with her as we are. Oh, that's true. Yeah, we know her. We just assume everyone else does. <laughs> they should. No. Well, Amelia is an author and native Marylander who lives and writes in Chicago. She's got a couple of books out there, including This House, The True Story of a Girl and a Ghost, and the new one, Maryland Ghosts, Paranormal Encounters in the Free State. We'll be talking about that. And also this awesome little children's book called Breakfast with Bigfoot. We're going to have to talk about that as well. <laughs> uh, but, but she graduated from Hood College in Maryland, and she's the co-founder of Chicago Paranormal Seekers. So maybe we'll delve into that as well. Oh, welcome back. You've been on here. What have you been on here? Twice before? I don't remember. How, or well, just, just once. I know we've had tried to have you on again, but we're, you had a possessed phone for the longest time, and we could never <laughs> yeah, talk to you. <laughs> It was once and then several unsuccessful attempts. Yeah, that was a special time. <laughs> it was the, It's those uh, spirits that hang around you. They screw around with your cell phone. Well, even today, we're on oh, Skype yeah. now, but we tried to call you on the cell phone, and it, it rang, but it never rang on your end. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Well, let's, let's get into a little bit about, you know, your, your past here for people who don't know. What made you want to come to Chicago and tell us just very briefly about your first book, This House. Uh, well, I kind of moved to Chicago on a whim. Um, after college, I was diagnosed with cancer, and I ended up uh, being in treatment in chemotherapy for six months at home with my parents, who now live in Pennsylvania. And it gave me a lot of time to think and a lot of time to write. Um, and so I ended up writing uh, This House during that time. Uh, the first draft of it, and then I was desperate to sort of get out of my home, get out of my hometown, the, you know, get out of Pennsylvania as well, and sort of move on to to a new place in Chicago. Um, I moved here with a friend, and uh, it ended up, of course, being an absolutely fabulous opportunity for the publishing world and for the ghost hunting world. So that that they came together for me really quickly. Um, this house, of course, was a childhood story uh, that I had reconnected with while I was sort of thinking back nostalgically on a lot of different aspects of my life. And that experience that I had exploring this abandoned house when I was a kid really stuck out with me and the connection that I had had with the ghost. And looking back for all of my paranormal exploration, seeing that that was probably the one and only time uh, up to very recently that I had actually seen a ghost, that I had made any kind of real connection with you know, the spirit world, and so I thought that that would be the perfect thing to write a book about. And I didn't know at the time that I would become like a paranormal author and that that would sort of be my thing. I just was interested in writing in general, so I, was, I thought I was going to write children's books, actually just, you know, forever and ever, and uh, that obviously... Uh out. <laughs> I was just about to ask, I mean, do you prefer writing for younger audiences? Well, I mean, I guess, you know, in a way this house it can be a, it construed as a young adult book for sure, and I enjoy writing for children, but the things I've done, so many things now in different play, in different aspects of publishing with children's publishing, uh, translation, um, I do technical writing now as like, a, you know, one of my actual uh, well-paying jobs. And I, I enjoy all of it. So I, um, 
I like to write about the paranormal the best, but I do like to write for a young adult audience as well. So whenever I have the opportunity to mix those, that's that's good with me. So. Oh, that's really cool. So tell us about Maryland Ghosts now. It's it's kind of a collection, it seems, of different accounts from Maryland. So it's in in my perspective. I mean, that's that's a very good uh, book of folklore that you've got here that researchers in the future will want to use this book you know perhaps to uh to base their own writing off of thank you um yeah maryland ghost is a collection of 35 stories uh what i did was and you don't have to be from maryland to enjoy the book because what i what i decided to do is you know there's a lot of books everywhere from every state and region that do talk about the legends and the folklore and that's really cool and of course I you know I live and breathe on that stuff but what I really love are ghost stories people's actual experiences so you know we all know about uh, Resurrection Mary like we were talking about earlier but I want to know who's actually seen her and what happened and how they felt and so looking back in my home state of Maryland and how much I add there's just an absolute you know, it's a playground of, of folklore and history, and it's so amazing. I was like, you know, I've got to reach back. And all the stories I've been told by friends and relatives over the years, I thought I've got to collect these in one place. So it's sort of a mishmash of um, recounting history and folklore um, and then telling people's actual personal experiences and relating those in different ways. I did interviews. I did, you know, I did Facebook message interviews with people. I had people write me handwritten letters that I transcribed. It was a really cool process. And, um, you know, Ed Akonowitz is a big Maryland writer. He is to Maryland what, you know, Richard Crow or Slavielski is to, to Chicago. And um, he has collected a lot of the folklore and a lot of stories as well. And so I guess what I'm also doing is like building on his legacy and bringing a new perspective to it. So people's actual authentic personal experiences and not just uh, the, the legends and the folk tales told over and over again. So, Well, you have your own encounter in the book, don't you, at Hood College? Can you tell yeah. us a little bit about that? I kind of, it's funny how I wanted to not focus on my own story since this house was about me, and then I ended up putting a couple of my own in the book anyway. Well, that's okay. Um, well, those are always the best ones, too, because I you figured, know people believe those because it's you telling your own story. Right, right. I figured, you know, why not? I've, I had the privilege of working and or living in a lot of these historic places, uh, especially when I went to college and I was out there in, you know, Civil War battlefield country near Antietam and near you know, um, South Mountain and all these places. And so the house that I lived in at, at Hood College was a residential house on the street, but it, it had been reverted into a dormitory. And uh, it was it was haunted as hell. And it's one of those things that, you know, even though I've always been into the paranormal, it wasn't until later that I really looked back and realized how haunted it was. It's sort of like when you live with it, you just sort of brush it under the carpet because I didn't want to deal with it. And of course, you know, it was college. So there was a lot of the fogginess that whole <laughs> life anyway but um but yeah i had some very interesting uh experiences there with um a couple of my roommates as well um seeing big like floating i don't want to call them orbs because they weren't they weren't light they were solid big solid like almost bowling balls that would hang in the air and sort of hover and vibrate and then shoot you know down the hallway oh, that's um, cool hearing giggling and footsteps and things like that and we had a roommate that lived upstairs in the attic 
in the attic spanned the the ceilings of all of our bedrooms and you would hear all sorts of noises. You would hear people talking in different voices up there. Um, you would hear something that sounded like a person rolling furniture across the floor. Um, it would sound like somebody was bouncing a basketball, but in like six places at once. And it was like, she either wasn't up there or she was up there by herself and just things like that. And then, um, you know, I had a, a night terror in which I had seen, in which a lady uh, came out of my closet and she hovered at the foot of my bed. And it was, you know, it was like a sleep paralysis episode. And she was like growling at me and pointing her finger at me. And it was absolutely the most vivid, terrifying thing Jeez. I can tell you I've ever seen. I found out uh, in 2009, actually, fast forwarding to a time when my friend Sarah came to visit me in Chicago, she had lived in the German house with me. And uh, she lived in that same, she stayed in the room I stayed in a year after me. She had a dream, a night terror sleep paralysis, where a woman came out of the closet and came and knelt by her bed and was screaming at her. She was dressed the same way. She had long hair. I mean, it was when, when we conferred that, that that had happened to both of us. It uh, it made me glad I was six hundred miles away from Maryland. That's kind of creepy. Like, have you ever, have you ever tried going back there and to do some research to see if other people have experienced that? You know, without telling them what you're talking about, just to see if they've experienced things to kind of get that together. Well, my cousin lived there too, because my cousin also studied German when she went to Hood, and she told me that nothing ever ever happened in the house, and her roommates never reported anything. And I visited. Um, and I actually can't tell you a lot about it because there is research that was uncovered that was actually incredibly fascinating and uncanny, but it's actually going to be a part of a, um, a TV segment that I'm going to be doing uh, for the Sci-Fi Channel in the near future where that is going to be revealed, the research that we did and you know, looking into the history of this house and finding out why I and a few of my roommates were haunted, but the people who came before me and or before us and the people who lived in the house after us have never reported any activity. Oh, so you're soon to be a movie star. Good thing we got you now. Oh yes, oh yes. <laughs> no autographs, please. <laughs> Hopefully, you get a, a a decent part in there. I've know a few things I've done with Mike too. You know, they talk to you for hours and then it goes on air and you're on there for like two minutes. <laughs> yeah, it's definitely. Um, we have Sarah and I are have a half of the show to ourselves apparently as far as we know so it's going to be sort of a retelling of our experiences in the German house as, as well as uh, the research and things that were uncovered um, but I, I can't talk about it now but if you read so in Maryland Ghosts it sort of leaves it open-ended because obviously that research hadn't happened yet until more recently um, so it's just kind of the retelling of what happened to me what happened to our roommate Kim and what happened to Sarah and uh, the different, just the different experiences we had on a day-to-day -day basis. And then years later, when we compared notes, realizing just how bizarre uh, some of the stuff was that happened there. What show is this going to be on, are you allowed to say? I don't think I can say yet, but it's a new show that's premiering very soon, and then I will be on the next season. Oh, that's cool. What were you going to so, say, Mike? I'm sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off there. Oh, that's okay. I, I was just going to try to ask about a different haunted place from the book. I'll just change the subject when they're in the middle of talking. I'll go ahead. <laughs> well, I, I was kind of interested in this Dr. Samuel Mudd house in Waldorf. Can you tell us a little bit about that and this apparition photo that's in the book? 
Yeah, this apparition photo blew me away. Um, I'm sure you guys have experienced the same thing where somebody tells you they have a really cool ghost photo and they send it to you and it's an orb. And they're like, they give you some detailed description of who it is and what happened. And, and it's an orb. <laughs> exactly. Some nebulous mist. Um, so these ladies um, told me, so Rhonda Dixon and Margaret Perry Ehrlich of um, inspired ghost tracking, which is a major group in Maryland. They told me they had this awesome ghost photo from the mud house and they sent it to me and it, I nearly jumped a mile high. So the mud house is in Waldorf and it is, um, the restored home of Dr. Samuel Mudd. He was convicted in the conspiracy to assassinate Lincoln because he treated, um, he, what was it? He treated John Wilkes Booth early in the morning after Lincoln's assassination. Right, because I think didn't didn't Booth jump down Booth from the... His ankle when he jumped. Yeah. And he escaped, and he managed to make it to Dr. Mudd's house. Dr. Mudd was somebody who always opened his home. He did, his, he did a lot of his treatments out of his home. So uh, that was one of the first places that Booth went, and he was treated early in the morning. Um, and then he left. And one of the reasons why Dr. Mudd got in trouble, of course, it's like a hugely complicated thing. But basically, the main thing is that it took Dr. Mudd an awful long time to report to the police that John Wilkes Booth had been there. Um, so he he was um, convicted and actually later pardoned by, I want to say, Andrew Johnson. So he was later pardoned, but that was, you know, he actually, when he got out of jail, he moved back to his home and continued his practice um, to his death. So he, you know, so <laughs> I'm a real historian here. So um, he actually, you know, continued to practice in his home to his death. And then um, they, of course, I think, you know, regular folks lived in the house for a while until recently the um, Samuel Mudd society um actually put it you know put it back together as a place that the public is allowed to visit and allowed to explore and um as sort of a living history type place so sure. this photo so the story itself sort of resonates around these women exploring this with their ghost hunting group on a day when it was you know open i think for the public well why, um, why were they there i mean What's the haunted story? What's the ghost well, story? You know, the ghost stories are sort of, from that place, it's known to be haunted, but not in any particularly, like, amazing way. It's just, you know, it's basically... So just the generic, you know, the generic cold spots, things like that. Cold spots, um, apparition sightings, um, Dr. Mudd's wife, that sort of thing. Nothing, like, too... Um, wild and crazy, I would say, as far as hauntings are concerned. And the photo of this apparition, so this, so Rhonda uh, felt something behind her. She turned around and she snapped a picture uh, into a mirror. And there's another lady sort of with her there. And uh, in the mirror, you see a man standing on the stairs. Now, he doesn't look like Dr. Mudd. He doesn't look like he's even from that historical time period. Um, so it's kind of, it's interesting, but the photo is absolutely crisp and vivid, and you only see, you see right through him, and you only see about half of his body. But you can see the, the details of his, you know, he's wearing glasses. I mean, it's just, and there's like a reflection of his glasses from the flash 
and it's absolutely chilling. Could you um, send me that photo by any chance? I could definitely send it to you. And for your reference, the, the flash is reflected on the jacket of the woman. It's not reflected on the mirror so that you don't see his bottom half because there's a flash on the mirror. There's mm -hmm. actually no flash on the mirror. So I'd be glad to send it to you. Yeah, I'd love to see that, actually. Best pictures I've ever seen. So. It's nice to see real ones instead of, you know, the normal one that's a little orb and it's great-great-grandma Je Jenny coming to visit you. I know. Well, some other people sent me some really kick-ass photos, too, of um, at the Jericho Covered Bridge, which is in Harford County. Um, and they, you know, there's legends of hanging figures and people having been lynched on the bridge uh, after the Civil War. And I got sent a picture of what looks like a, somebody um, hanging from the rafters of this covered bridge. And apparently one of the people in the in this team that sent it to me, which was um, it's called Crip. They um, the, one of them is an EMT and he was saying because the figure looks like a little curled up and he was saying that would be characteristic of like rigor mortis was that, you know, the legs would curl in a little bit and the body would be stiff. And so things like those little extra details are sometimes <laughs> really creepy to me and add that extra bit of uh, I don't know, special something to, to these photos when I, when I get them from people. So just really cool stuff. It is cool. I love when people send photos. Sometimes they're really good. A lot of times they're nothing, unfortunately, but sometimes, you know, you right. get some amazing photos. I mean, I never capture anything on film. I take pictures everywhere I go and I've, I, I've gotten like two good photos in my life that I can say contain, you know, a, a spirit. And even then, Sometimes I feel like, well, you know, it could be this, could be that. So when I see these photos, it, it amazes me. Yeah, I have pretty good luck. I've uh, Mike's seen a few of mine, too. I, I tend to, I'm, I'm real lucky when it comes to that, if that's what you want to call it. I go out and I always get stuff. Oh, yeah. I get a lot of EVPs and things like that, but, you know, nothing in the photo department ever. Just a lot of, you know, the backs of other investigators and boring stuff like that. <laughs> Well, what's your favorite story from the book? I have a couple of favorite stories. Um, the The cool thing about this book is that people, I invited people to send me more than just ghost stories. I was like, you know, a paranormal encounter can range from anything, like, you know, your, your inner intuition, uh, doppelgangers, um, UFOs, things like that. So I got um, a couple of UFO stories, and I even got a gnome story. Which yeah, that is that's uh, one of my favorites is the gnome story. Is it like that gnome that that video was going around for a while? And what was it, Mexico, where the gnome was walking sideways? A little crab walk. I remember that that video had disturbed me a lot at the time. And when I got this, and you know, the gnome from that video and the series of videos that came after it looked like your sort of traditional cartoonish like lawn gnome kind of little guy uh -huh. the story that i got from my uncle which was actually two separate gnome stories um of encounters that he had also these these creatures were wearing these sort of like he described them as like little peter pan clothes like they looked like traditional mythological gnomes from what we understand a gnome to be um, historically, gnomes were thought of in much different ways, sort of earth spirits, cave-dwelling type creatures that protect land and things like that. They weren't always, you know, it was sort of a, a, the Germans began the tradition of the lawn gnome with the cone hat and, you know, all that cute, cutesy stuff. And uh, he ended up, he, he was hunting, actually, with, with a friend. And Were they gnome hunting? 
They were not, <laughs> but he, um, they, they were in a deer, they were in like a deer blind up in a tree. Okay. And, uh, he saw the gnome through his scope. They heard a bunch of noise and they thought a buck was going to walk into view. And they, he got the gnome on his scope and he was looking at it. And apparently the gnome or whatever, this little creature sensed that something was watching him and, it, he said it moved so fast that it became a blur, but that the leaves and things around it, you know, rustled up and it ran down the trail and then it disappeared. And he turned to his friend that was with him and his friend was sort of pale. And he was like, what, what was that? What the heck was all that about? And he was like, you didn't see it. He was like, no, I didn't see anything. I only heard all this noise and saw all this commotion on the ground, but I didn't see anything. And then my uncle told him what he had seen. And, uh, you know, that was, I think that was the end of their hunting expedition. They were sufficiently creeped out. Um, and my uncle saw another one along the highway near Frederick, Maryland. Like he just, saw, you know, was driving along the highway and he stopped the car and, uh, saw one like on an embankment near train tracks. And my uncle, someone who's had a lot of experiences since he was a kid, uh, and I trust him, obviously, and everything. And uh, yeah, were, I, I like all your Uncle Bernie's stories from this. It, it reminds me of one of those old guys who would sit out by the, uh, you know, by the old store and tell stories. And tell stories. Every time I see him, he has a new story. He just goes places, and things happen to him. And uh, he, you know, ever since he was a kid, he's had sort of like a gift. But then. He, you know, he fought in Vietnam. He had high exposure to Agent Orange, and he became very ill in the late 80s from it. It took that long for him to sort of have a physical breakdown, and uh, that's when things really kicked, you know, kicked into gear, I guess you could say. Ever since then, he's been having really strong experiences, and uh, just very interesting. He's a very interesting guy to talk to. He'll talk to you all day long. <laughs> He'll take that story and make it, you know, three a three-hour saga. So that's Uncle Bernie's. What his name was? Uncle Bernie. Yep. Do you, ever, do you ever spend a weekend at Bernie's? I never did. <laughs> Just checking. I never, for the record. Well, we okay. we have to talk about breakfast with Bigfoot. How in the world did you come up with this idea? Oh gosh, I um. Well, when I was living in Germany, uh, I originally had the thought, you know. I, I've always wanted to be an author, et cetera, et cetera. And when I lived in Germany, I really was inspired to kind of start writing. And so I wrote it almost as a parody um, just between me and my friend Gretchen. Uh, we had a little Bigfoot, you know, a little Bigfoot obsession going on. And we were looking up all the stuff on like the Bifro website and reading Bigfoot stories. And I had read a story about a guy who was abducted. Uh, by a Bigfoot and carried, he was carried through the woods by his backpack. Apparently he had like fallen asleep and it got dark or something. And this bat, this Bigfoot rescued him and uh, took him to his nest. And he spent the night with this Bigfoot and in the morning the Bigfoot let him go. And <laughs> I thought it was the most hysterical thing. Um, now did, did he spend the night with Bigfoot or spend the night with Bigfoot? <laughs> we may never know what really happened that night. But, uh, <laughs> Okay. Okay, what Mike. That was more than we needed. <laughs> what happens in Bigfoot's nest stays in Bigfoot's. Oh. That's right. <laughs> but so 
so I decided to write a children's, like a, a story about it. At the time, it wasn't like a children's children's story aimed at, you know, three to six-year-olds the way it is now. It was just a goofy story about a character named Gretchen who, you know, she gets lost in the woods. And I'm a big, I'm a big outdoors woman. I like to go hiking and camping and stuff. So I turned it into sort of a, a nature story about survival if you get lost and you can't find your mom and dad. And she ends up... Uh, you know, Bigfoot rescues her, and so the next morning they want to have uh, breakfast together, and he eats all of his Bigfoot food out in the woods, like what <laughs> animals would his eat. His Bigfoot food. <laughs> his Bigfoot food, you know, fish and berries and nuts and whatnot, and she has her people food in her backpack, like a peanut butter sandwich and goldfish crackers and, uh, you know, grapes. And so it's sort of like a very, uh, you know, watered-down comparison of what people eat versus what you eat in nature and sort of the idea of processed foods and stuff like that. And uh, the illustrator, the original illustrator was a, was a disaster. Um, the, it, Mike has seen a few of the illustrations. It was photo collage originally, and the, the, the photo collages were absolutely terrifying. It was like the stuff of nightmares. Like this was not a cute... Oh, uh, good for a children's book. It was not. It looked... It, it looked it was like the kind of thing that made you jump when you opened the file, like, oh, okay, my Bigfoot illustration is here. Oh, God. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, we got Charles Swinford on board then to, to do the really, really adorable illustrations of Bigfoot. So he's not very ape-like. He's more like a big, like a big furball kind of fur puff of, of love and stuff like that, which I think is more... Something like so, you would see on Sesame Street, like Mr. Snuffleupagus or something? Yeah, something <laughs> like that, and not so much. Like, he actually looks a little bit like that cartoon character. He used to be um, on the Marvin the Martian cartoons, and he was wearing... Oh, yeah, yeah, I know exactly who you mean. <laughs> he looks a little bit like that, and which is, you know, a lot less like the big, the pedophile Bigfoot that was in the la the last set of illustrations. <laughs> So, but it hasn't come out yet, so I'm still waiting on news, and I actually am expecting news any day. It was supposed to come out in December, but, you know, the nature of small publishers and publishing in general is that one thing, one disaster can happen one day with a wholesale order or something like that, and then mm -hmm. next thing you know, you've set back your schedule for, for six months, so. Yeah, I know that all too well. Yeah, so I, um, I advertised for it prematurely, but then... Now it should be coming out soon from Barclay Bryan Press, and uh, if nothing else, we'll get it out on Kindle edition or something like that so people can get their hands on it. So it's um, much highly anticipated, but not not here quite yet, but it's going to be good when it is soon. It, so. it sounds good. You know, speaking, you said you were in Germany. How long were you living in Germany? I lived in Germany for a year, so I studied there uh, my, my junior year of college. The folklore in Germany is amazing. I mean, have you got any stories from there? Or did, were you involved in that? Because the history and folklore in Germany is just absolutely amazing. I really, you know, it was interesting because I took a, a ghost, like a supernatural tour in Heidelberg where I lived. A lot of students study in Heidelberg. It's a great university. And uh, I expected a lot more ghost stories, but it's interesting the way um, there's a lot of excellent German folklore, but Germans aren't as much into the ghosts and paranormal side of things as, as we are. So when I went on the tour, it was a lot of legends. It was a lot of things about like werewolves and the, the sighting of the devil in, in uh, Heidelberg and witches, the witches mountain and things like that. And so it was really cool, but it was obviously based upon different legends and beliefs that people genuinely had, um, you know, 
seven, eight hundred years ago and things like that. But there were two major, major sites in Heidelberg that were allegedly haunted. One was a Nazi amphitheater on the top of a hill called Philosophenweg. You would walk up uh, or drive up this really big hill. And Heidelberg was always a liberal city, and so they never wanted to have anything to do with, with Hitler and World War II and all that. And so uh, the Nazis decided they were going to build a special theater there to try to convince the people that they should, you know, join them and, and cooperate with their regime and, uh, and the Heidelbergans and stuff. They, were, they never wanted to have any part of it. They were liberal. They were international. They, they hated the Nazis. So it fell through. But you have this huge Nazi amphitheater that's built on the top of this hill and the sort of architecture that they would use to be, you know, to be imposing um, was horrifying. And it, it's, it, you know, it, and it's creepy now. It's all overgrown. The s steps and the seats that people would sit on are all covered in grass now, and it's supposed to be haunted. Um, right behind that, literally, you walk again through a little patch of woods. There's an old um, cathedral and a Celtic, it was originally like a Celtic church area way back in the day, like 1,500 years ago, and then they built... Um, like a cathedral or a monastery over that, which is now also ruins. And so there were all these ruins back there as well, and the whole area is just supposed to be this spiritual place. And I went up there once uh, with a couple friends, and it was actually there were some people up there, you know, with candles and talking and, and drinking and stuff, but it was pretty darn creepy. Um, you could feel in the air, and again, like, you know, Germany is a very modern place. It's a very friendly place. And this was one of those places where you could feel um, that there was something there. So I didn't have any experiences, but it was, it was, an, it was amazing uh, to see that. And it was, a, it was a weird place. Wasn't the folklore out there, isn't there like uh, fairies and trolls and that kind of stuff? Isn't that big in that part of the it's world? Fairies, trolls, um, werewolves. Even there's a lot of Bigfoot legends and stuff um, that originate in Germany. Um, a lot of, you know, what we, where we get our modern ideas of elves and things like that, that comes from that area. A lot more so in, in Northern Europe, well, further north, um, Scandinavia and Iceland and places like that. But, um, but they do have, you know, the neatest folklore and historical outlook there with looking back on, on where they've come from with these sorts of legends and mentalities that people had back in the day. I've always wanted to go out there myself. I thought it would be amazing. I mean, in America, we got cool stuff, but you go to Europe and places there, their history is, you know, way, way longer than America yeah, ever is. Yeah, their buildings go back thousands of years. I mean, we, we don't have anything in Illinois that's 200 years, you know, over 200 years, unless you're talking about the Cahokia Mounds. Right. Right. I mean, there's even, there's talk in, you know, because cities that are built on top of cities and things like that. Um, in Europe, you hear stories about people seeing the ghosts of other, of, you know, just the head and shoulders of someone because they're actually walking on the, the street level as it used to be however many hundreds of years ago when they lived. Oh, that's cool. Um, so I never actually heard that. That's, that's actually heard, pretty cool. <laughs> yeah, I've heard stories about that. I've heard stories of people having their uh, basements haunted by people um, because, again, the street level, the ground level was so much lower um, hundreds and hundreds of years ago because you have all these layers, of course, of, you know, building on top of building. So there, there's a lot of cool stuff to be seen there. So what are your plans now? Are you working with some paranormal groups in Chicago? Yep. Um, my group is the Chicago Paranormal Seekers 
we don't take ourselves too seriously. We do open ourselves up to home and business investigations, but we do a lot of exploration at, at places that are already known to be haunted. Um, you know, a lot of things that we do for our personal um, satisfaction and, and knowledge and things like that. So we have a lot of fun. And, you know, I work around with different groups. We have, there's a big network in Chicago, so everyone is friends with everyone. Um, as long just, as they have matching hats and t-shirts, they're legitimate then. Exactly. We, and we don't. We, we got ourselves our hiking boots. Um, is that the first thing when someone calls you for something, they say their home is haunted, and the first question is, do you have matching hats and t-shirts? Right, right. Now, what what uh, what shade of black will you be wearing to my house? Because I want to know if it's... You know, I'm guilty of that. I actually am I'm terrible. <laughs> I, I wear black on everything I go to. i just always done that, even before I was doing this. I just, I don't know. I'm, I like black. <laughs> Yeah, it, most of my, you know, my clothes are, are dark. Well, the so. picture I'm looking at you right now on uh, Skype, very, very black. <laughs> oh, yeah, very goth. Um, yeah, no, I, I try to go for the, the city girl sophisticated angle so that people know that I'm, I'm legit and not just another face in the crowd, I guess. It pays to be pretty when you do this kind of stuff, too. So. <laughs> yes, especially in a, a field that seems to be dominated by men. Right, right. It can it can suck sometimes, and it can also work in my favor. Uh, so you know, there's that. But but yeah. So I work with this group, and we're we're all you know we're all working professionals. So we also do this on our own time, kind of. And um, we we went to Villisca this year already. The Villisca Axe Murder House. That place is great. I went there too. Yeah. That's some place I've always wanted to go. It was a very sad, disturbing experience. I had I had had ethical reservations about going there uh, last year. I wasn't sure if that was something I wanted to do. Um, it seemed too close to home for me to go spend the night in the house where an entire family and children had been murdered uh, for my entertainment. It's a very but sad up, place. Yeah, I, I did end up going. There, it was, you know, again, you're sort of desensitized in the moment because you're there and you're all hyped up and excited and things are things are happening. So when I left, I sort of took a, a feeling with me for a while of, uh, you know, just a, a very a very strange feeling. But it was cool. We didn't have too much activity. We had some stuff early on in the evening, and then after that, it kind of quieted down. Yeah, we had the opposite, actually. It was pretty and quiet. Like, and, and late evening is when we started getting quite a bit of things going on. What happened was one of the people in our group became violently ill. So we started early in the night, and around 10, 10.30, the guys, the girls, we were out in the barn taking a break, and the guys were upstairs in the children's bedroom um, doing some provoking, and a guy got started to feel really sick. His head started to hurt. And he came out on the front lawn and he puked everywhere. This guy isn't on our team. He was a guest. Really nice guy. He was really shaken up by the whole thing. And I think what it did was instead of, I mean, it, in some ways, for me, it amped me up to go back in there and be like, all right, now, now things are real. Let's do this. And I think it shocked a couple of the other people in the group. And then we sort of quieted down after that. Like, it was almost like we were told, you know, like we were... The, the house was like, okay, you think you can come in and, and just act however you want to act? Well, guess what? We're not we're not joking around here. So I think it sort of like shook shook us up a little bit, and we were not we didn't go for it then as much. You know, as we did. one thing about that house, you were there, so you know what I'm talking about too. Can you imagine how somebody carried out those murders in that tiny tiny house where anything everybody would have heard everything? I I just can't I, comprehend I, it. 
I, we had a seven hour drive back to Chicago. I drove with, with Christina and that's all we talked about. We sat there and we, we were reading some stuff on her iPhone about like, you know, accounts of the house and the murders and actual studies that have been done. And we were like, how did this happen? It's bizarre. It's absolutely bizarre. And every suspect in the case seems like a viable suspect. And it's just, you just, every, it's just so strange. It's one of the strangest things. It left me with such a weird feeling. Uh, especially that little closet where they say he hid in upstairs, they think. That the tiny, tiny little closet, as soon as you walk out of there, you look to the left and the parents' beds are like three foot away. And then you go to the right and the kids are there. And that stairway is tiny and loud. You can't breathe without everybody hearing what's going on. So it's, I mean, I know that they surmise that one of the children was awake, but that was the girl who was downstairs. She had like defensive wounds. But yeah, I, it's just so, so bizarre. It makes me sick thinking about it. And, uh, and the fact that there's still ax marks in the wall too. I mean, people lived in this house for like 60 years after this happened or more and they covered up some of the ax marks, but then they didn't cover up one or two. I mean, how could you look at that every day? Well, I know after Darwin bought it, he actually put it back how it used to look because somebody had bought it and modernized it more and Darwin changed it back to how it used to look back then. So it was authentic. Yeah, right. I, I heard and I, I think this was in a documentary that was made about it, but somebody was interviewed for the documentary who had lived there as a young girl. Her parents rented the house or something and she said there were still blood stains on the wall. Oh, and they oh, just nice. never I mean, but that's something that you can't really get get rid of, you know. I mean, it, unless they just wallpapered over it. Right, there's a deep deep axe mark in the parents' bedroom that I guess even if you like, I don't know, spackled over it or whatever, you could uncover it again or or uh, cuz some of the axe marks were successfully painted over, but then this one was so deep. I guess when Darwin bought it, he was able to uncover it again. But, yeah, the blood stains, everything. I mean, the house is just, it's not right in there. <laughs> well, I, I can't even imagine. I, I went uh, on an investigation once at a house where a girl had shot herself in the head with a shotgun. That's never and, nice. Well, they, you know, I mean, the room was fine. They had su sufficiently re-wallpapered and everything. You couldn't tell anything happened in there, but... Just knowing that it did happen was really, it, it made the hairs stand up, you know, just to know that that, that occurred in that room at some feel, point. Yeah. It's almost like you can still feel the, the shot ringing out, you know, like it's that residue that stays back. And so you can feel the almost, I don't know, in some ways you walk into the, the Velisca house and it's almost like the murders just happened. You can still feel the tension in the air. That place is so, I know I went in there, I was in there myself a few times just and you can just feel something. It's, I mean, it, it's just terrible what happened. I was talking to Darwin's wife about that. I'm like, well, I don't understand why the children's spirits are still here. And uh, she kind of got tears in her eyes and choked up and couldn't answer. Because that, that bothers me. I'm like, why in heaven's name are the children's spirits still there? Right, if they're there because they have each other or they don't know where, like, their mom and dad are. Like, I thought about that, too. I was like, you know, what what's going on? I just, you know, I hope if they're all there that they're all together, you know. But that's a creepy place out of all the places I've been to. That one, I actually opened the door, walked in myself and just got a feeling that I don't know how to describe. It just it was just the creepiest, weirdest, strange feeling I ever felt. Yeah, it's it gets you at that place. Ugh. Well, let's take it somewhere a little bit more positive. <laughs> well, that, the show's about this kind of stuff, though. We're finally yeah. hitting on the stuff the listeners love. <laughs> 
Well, do you have any plans for the future? Do you have any events coming up or anything? Yes. Um, I have. Uh, well, I also have an interview on Monday night uh, for The Chosen Radio. And in August, I'll be at the Phantom Fest in Danville, Illinois. In yes, I'll, I'll also be there. Yay! Well, and we'll also be together for the Paranormal Kicks Cancer event on September 15th, but the location is still to be determined in Illinois. Um, they still don't have the location in that yet, huh? It's funny that. how Amelia knows more about the events I'm going to than I am. Yeah. <laughs> hmm. Well, I... I uh, I'm an obsessive list maker and calendar planner type person, so I have all my plans already. I already know what I'm going to wear. Um, and then <laughs> You already know what you're going to wear? Is that what you just said? I think about that sometimes, yes. Well, <laughs> I know what I'm going to wear That's because a... I always wear the same thing. Okay, <laughs> okay Mike. <laughs> we'll, be at, uh, we'll be at Afterlife Paranormal Conference together at the Portage Theater also. That's October 5th and 6th. And I'm also planning to do a book tour in Maryland at the beginning of September I don't have details about that yet, but it's going to be a mini book tour. I have some things already uh, tentatively booked, so that's going to be a lot of fun. And uh, so this, yeah, this is going to be a, a busy, busy upcoming uh, ghost season for me. So that sounds really awesome. Thank you. Thanks for having me on again. Yeah, I'd actually say we've tried a few times to get you on here, but I know uh, <laughs> success. The the radio spirits just won't allow you to be on. Right. We, <laughs> Well, this time it's it's worked out, so I'm very grateful for that, and, and thank you very much for being on. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for having me. No problem, and then we'll have you again, if if you're allowed to. If the radio spirits will allow it, we'll have you on again. Cosmic forces, definitely. Okay, take care now. Okay, you too. TheEdgeOnAir.com wants to invite you to be abducted. Tune in Friday night starting at 10 p.m. for Thresholds Radio. Host John Stevenson is your guide through the realm of the paranormal with an hour-long radio show sure to give you the heebie-jeebies. Check out UFO-Info.com to learn more. It's Thresholds Radio every Friday night at 10 p.m. on TheEdgeOnAir.com. Welcome back. As we said in the beginning of the show, the sad news that Richard T. Crow has passed away this week. He was a Chicago historian, a ghost hunter, and a founder of Chicago's first ghost tour company, which he started in 1973 and has not slowed down to this day. He is the father of the ghost lore in the city of Chicago. Many have followed in his footsteps. We've had Richard on the show before, and what we're going to do in his honor is play segments from his interviews now. Enjoy. I'm a product of the south side of Chicago, and uh, through my life, it seems I was just being pushed in this direction. When I uh, was growing up along Garfield Boulevard, 55th Street, Chicago, I would, uh, as a good Catholic kid, be an altar boy and hear stories at Visitation Parish, the nuns and priests about haunted cemeteries and uh, churches and things of that nature, and uh, that sort of put me in a, in a, a, tra- a trajectory there in that area. Then I went to uh, Quigley South for three years, where my Latin professor was Father John J. Nicola, and he not only taught Latin, but he talked about the diabolical possession and exorcism, and he was an authority in a case from Maryland that became the basis for the novel The Exorcist by William Peter Blatty, and uh, then he was the advisor in the film uh, by Billy Friedkin, the uh, film version of The Exorcist, and he also wrote the introduction to the Amityville Horror. Well, I couldn't hack the seminary for more than three years, so I went to Gage Park High School for my senior year, and that's smack dab at the heart of Resurrection Mary country. So I began to hear stories about Resurrection Mary big time from fellow classmates, 
And when I went to DePaul University, I learned a dirty little secret that uh, the best way to get good grades is to write about uh, your term papers on topics your professor doesn't know about. And all kinds of uh, supernatural topics, whether it be English literature, geography, what have you, and was so notorious for that that my geography professor, Dr. Richard Hauck, would ask me to put together a tour back in 1973 of the um, uh, haunted geography of Chicago. That tour was the first tour in the world by bus of haunted places, and uh, took everybody by surprise by having a 200-person uh, waiting list by the time we took off that day, and uh, that's how it all began, basically. I'm just... Uh, Keep going ahead, keep going forward here with new projects and uh, new discoveries. And, uh Is that ghosts are living history, and even though I might uh, have not been able to met Abraham Lincoln in life because he was dead in 1865, that doesn't mean I might not run into his ghost someday. Well, it's long out of print, but Father Nicola did publish a book years ago called uh, Diabolical Possession and Exorcism. It was published actually by an Illinois uh, publishing house, Tan Books out of Rockford. If you want the, uh, his side of things, that would be the place to start to get a copy of that. Now, I say it's out of print, but I'm sure you can track one down through uh, Amazon, through their uh, used book uh, search and all that. But, uh, yeah, he's uh, been living in Maryland now for quite a few uh, quite a few years. I've not been in touch with him lately. But uh, he was a big role model for me. Uh, that was, on, it was in 1973, and the date was October 27. It was a Saturday before Halloween that year and uh, was from DePaul's uh, Lincoln Park campus. And uh, I'll never forget looking out the window and watching all these people with disappointed faces who couldn't get on because it was jam-packed. And that's what caused me to uh, uh, just take a, a you know chance here, if you will, and hire two coaches of my own. And they ran in December that year. I filled those up with the uh, list from the uh, ones who were turned down from the DePaul tour. So although DePaul sponsored the first tour, and although I'm a liberal arts uh, major, I certainly had some business sense when I said, give me the mailing list. And um, that's when I started my own tour business. something because it's not just you having experience and you're worried about it but when you've got all these other witnesses then that's really uh, uh, icing on the cake so to speak and um, it was in 2007 that I was doing one of my walking tours in Chinatown you know how much I really like Chinatown for its ghostly possibilities mm -hmm. and we were in a store called the Donkey and we're leaving the store and I had previously prepped everybody with the tale about this little Chinese lady ghost who looks to be about 80 years of age, five foot tall, silver hair, 
cut it a bob, and uh, she's a big smile on her face, and she's seen uh, usually in a burgundy jacket and hood. Well, uh, we're leaving the store, and uh, there at the mailbox, just a few steps out of the, the front door, there was this little lady. I, I mean, uh, they actually, uh, somebody grabbed me by the, the sleeve and pointed her out to me. And sure enough, there was this lady, five foot tall, silver hair, cut in a bob, looked to be about 80 years of age, big smile on her face. And uh, the only thing wrong was that she didn't have on the burgundy jacket and hood, because she's invariably wearing that. But this is what's fascinating. It was an April day, and it was warm. So it was too warm to be wearing a winter-type jacket and hood. But she had a burgundy jacket and hood, and she was hugging that to her chest. And I'm dancing around trying to look her in the eye, and she uh, kept averting my gaze. You know, it's almost like trying to get the leprechaun, you know, look at the leprechaun in the eye and uh, capture him. And uh, she kept turning her head, and then I was distracted for just a moment, and boom, she was gone. Right, well, I've done uh, Salem, Massachusetts, I've done uh, New Orleans, and I've done Gettysburg. Gettysburg, and that's one I, I tell you, Gettysburg is really interesting to me because I've, of course, been a Civil War buff for a long time. And when we were in Gettysburg, it's not large enough to uh, take care of all of our people, but a number of us took rooms uh, at the Farnsworth House. And the Farnsworth House, if you ever get to Gettysburg, is the building that has all the bullet holes in it. And uh, you can see all these little uh, white splotches here, and you know, close, and that's the bullet holes. And um, it's haunted by a number of different uh, possible uh, uh, ghosts there. Although the ghost I encountered... Uh, on my stay was actually a post-Civil War ghost from about 1900 or so. And I was staying on the second floor, second room from the front. And uh, I was out all day, very tired, jumped into bed, and uh, then I started hearing footsteps outside the door. And it wasn't any of our people, because we were out all day, everybody was beat. Nobody's walking around, and it just continued for probably at least an hour and a half or more. And uh, I'm debating to myself, do I get up, open the door, look out there and see what's going on, or uh, should I just wait here for something else to happen next or whatever? And I just stayed in bed listening to the footsteps back and forth, pacing back and forth, until I uh, fell asleep. <laughs> now, I found out that the footsteps pacing back and forth uh, come from an uh, incident happened about 1900 when a local boy was hit by a horse and wagon out in front of this building. And uh, he was severely injured. He was brought into the uh, bedroom up there, the room actually next to where I was staying. And he was being cared for by a doctor. The doctor was trying to save his life. The doctor was going on all night long uh, trying to save him, but the boy died early the next morning. And during the time the doctor was with that boy trying to save his life, the distraught father of that little boy was pacing back and forth, back and forth in the hallway. And that's exactly what I heard. You know what? The more I learn about ghosts, the more I learn I don't know. There's not an easy answer. Uh, I would say definitely some of the ghosts that are classic ghost stories around America do fit the category that you just mentioned. Just like a replay over and over again, like a loop that plays over and over again, uh, out, of, out of space, out of time, whether it be just auditory, whether it be visual as well. Um, yeah, that's definitely certain cases. But then again, there are certain ghosts that definitely can uh, communicate back and forth with us, 
And those ghost stories definitely show an intelligence. They show the survival after death. Obviously, among my favorites to be uh, anything involving Resurrection Mary. And also, I've been, well, as our friend Susan Murawski knows, I've been very much interested in the American Indians and uh, Robinson Family Burial Ground on East River Road. That's very, very fascinating. And also, next year, remember, will be the uh, bicentennial of the War of 1812. TheEdgeOnAir.com wants to invite you to be abducted. Tune in Friday night starting at 10 p.m. for Thresholds Radio. Host John Stevenson is your guide through the realm of the paranormal with an hour-long radio show sure to give you the heebie-jeebies. Check out UFO-Info.com to learn more. It's Thresholds Radio every Friday night at 10 p.m. on TheEdgeOnAir.com. Welcome back. So I hear you have another top ten list for us today, Mike. The what? The most haunted churches? Is that what it was? That's right, John. And this this one has been phenomenally popular. Usually, people love my top ten list, but this one actually was posted on the front page of FARC.com. Some of your listeners might be aware of that website. What's well, a good idea? Actually, I was telling you that off air. I go, I'm amazed you never thought of this one before. Well, the the thing is that. Uh, that yeah, I mean it. It takes a lot of research and writing each one of these lists. So it took me a while. I I just kind of wrote down about two dozen new ideas for top ten lists. I am kind of running out of original ideas, but you know, hopefully they'll get more creative as I go down the list. You can maybe start doing the lower twenty list or something. Yeah. No. It, what I'm gonna end up doing is like the top ten most underappreciated ghosts in Illinois, you know, stuff like that. <laughs> there you go. But this is one of the good one. And as a focus of such devotion and reverence, now I found that churches are some of the most haunted places in Illinois. And pretty much every building you could think of, every type of building has been haunted. But churches get a lot of energy concentrated into them. And whether it's a devoted pastor who refuses to leave his flock a religiously inspired vision, or spirits of the departed that are just drawn to the energy of an active congregation, it's rare to find a church that is devoid of at least one ghostly tale. So these are the top 10 that are most well-known in Illinois. At number 10, we have kind of an obscure one. This is Mount Pleasant Church in Claremont, Illinois. That's over by Olney, if anybody knows where that is. This is a relatively new addition to local lore. It's developed its legends within the past few decades. The church closed in 1990, and it's said to be home to a variety of phenomenon. Visitors have reported hearing choirs and footsteps, 
have witnessed lights emanating from cracks in the door, and there's even rumors of phantom funerals that have taken place at the nearby cemetery. So as of yet, there's very little information that's been confirmed about this location. So it's mostly just kind of rumors. And number nine, we have St. Rita's Church. This is in Chicago, Illinois. A lot of these churches are in Chicago. Now, this particular church is known for one hair-raising event on All Souls Day in the early 1960s. This was witnessed by dozens of parishioners who gathered there to pray, and they saw something in the early evening. This was announced by the organ. The organ began to play by itself. Then suddenly they claimed that six robed monks appeared, three wearing black and three wearing white. The parishioners attempted to flee, but they found the doors of the church were locked. The phantom monks advanced and the organ wailed. Finally, the vision faded as disembodied voices whispered, pray for us. Eyewitnesses estimated that this whole incident lasted about two minutes. Wow, that's actually pretty cool. And a bunch of people saw that then. Yeah, and it was it was very intense. And if you read books about Chicago ghost lore, that is an incident that's written about quite frequently. Well, I can imagine. That would be pretty freaky. So at number eight on the list is St. John's Methodist Church. This is in Oak Park, Illinois. Now, this church has a diverse congregation that's heavily oriented towards missionary work, and they believe that all are welcome to come and share in the service. But beneath this outwardly quaint appearance lurk some unusual tales. The basement of the church is said to be particularly active, It is home to the ghost of an old lady and one mischievous phantom who likes to play pranks on visitors. On at least one occasion, several churchgoers were playing pool in the basement when one of the balls disappeared. After looking at all the pockets and on the floor, the ball dropped from the ceiling with a thud. According to the Shadowlands Index of Haunted Places for Illinois, there is a winding set of stairs that leads to a labyrinth-like attic. Many of the rooms are used for storage, but one in particular contains a cryptic message written on the wall in red crayon, which says, be kind in God's house. So a lot of kind of stories hidden in the nooks and crannies of that church. Uh, Number seven on the list is St. Benedict Church in Chicago, Illinois. This is one that Ursula Bielski wrote about in her most recent book. St. Benedict Church was built in 1918 to serve the area's German-American residents. And stained glass windows and ornate stations of the cross were even imported from Germany. Now, according to Ursula, the church's haunted history can be traced back to its construction when a worker fell from the scaffolding to his death near the altar. Since that time, an apparition of the worker has been seen sitting in the front pews or standing behind the columns in the back of the altar. A janitor has also heard the sound of a kneeler rising and falling, as he unlocked the church for early morning mass. Hmm. That'd be cool if the ghost, they actually would see him up like working in the rafters or something. That would actually be pretty cool, recreating what he used to do. Yeah, well, and St. Benedict Church is really a beautiful church. It has a red brick facade, so it's it's very nice looking. Now, number six is St. Terribius Church. I'm not sure exactly how you pronounce that, but this is another one from Chicago. And it's an old Roman Catholic church on Chicago's southwest side. And according to Richard Crow, our favorite and belated uh, ghost expert, Mm -hmm. there was a priest named Father Joe 
Leckard that led St. Terabius during the 1950s and 60s. When he was replaced due to a reorganization of the local Catholic hierarchy, he was said to have died of a broken heart. It wasn't long before parishioners whispered that his ghost still lingered. There were whiffs of cigarette smoke, and altar boys had seen the figure of a man wearing a beretta, just like Father Lecker once wore. His ghost has also been seen walking around the other parish buildings in the area. Now, number five is the First Methodist Church in Evanston, Illinois. The First Methodist Church was founded in July of 1854, and in its early history, it provided leadership for the anti-slavery, temperance, peace, and educational movements. The current building opened in 1911. In 1954, it hosted the Assembly of the World Council of Churches, an organization that works to unify Protestant denominations. The First Methodist Church Sanctuary, completed in 1930, is reportedly haunted by the ghost of an anonymous man dressed in a black business suit. According to the Shadowland Index again, he walks down the side aisle in the sanctuary, coming out from behind one pillar and walking behind the next. But if you look behind the pillar, no one will be there. And no one really knows who this man was or why he might be haunting the church. Now, number four is Holy Family Church in Chicago, Illinois. Now, this is has kind of an interesting history, too. It was built in the 1850s, and it was one of the only buildings of its kind to survive the Chicago fire. And its very origins were connected to the spiritual. According to Father McCarthy, the church's pastor in 1973, its altar was positioned above a stream that ran under the church, which itself was considered sacred ground by American Indians because of a battle that took place there. Traditionally, divine intervention is credited for preventing the church from being consumed in the Chicago fire, since Holy Family is located only a few blocks from where popular belief asserts the fire started. Additionally, statues of two boys holding candles hang high above the altar. These are thought to be representations of the spirits of two altar boys that led a priest to a dying woman in need of receiving last rites. Once, Father McCarthy also witnessed a figure standing in the choir loft, although it had been closed to the public for years. Now, this next one is a very fiery tale. This is number three on our list. It's the Old First Baptist Church near Collinsville, Illinois. Now, this former Baptist church has a long and tragic history. It survived only one fire to perish in a second. According to legend, locals caught in a furor of anti-German sentiment during World War I attacked and seized a German janitor who had been working at the church and locked him in the basement. Fearful that he might turn them into the sheriff, the mob burnt the church to the ground and blamed the fire on an accident. A new church was built over the old basement, and since that time, visitors have reported seeing shadowy figures, experiencing cold spots and uneasiness, and hearing disembodied footsteps. Additionally, items have gone missing and unseen hands have left bruises on members of the congregation. Now, this church held an annual haunted house, but it burned down under mysterious circumstances in October of 2003. So, quite a very haunted place. That's an interesting one, yeah. Now, the number two church on our list is one that some of you probably have been waiting to hear. This was the Beverly Unitarian Church in Beverly, Illinois. This is also known as the Irish Castle. You might be familiar with that. 
It's one of the most haunted places in Chicago, and it's host to a bunch of different phenomenon that usually manifests in the wintertime. Built in 1886, the Irish castle changed hands several times until finally becoming a church in 1959. It was then that the ghost stories began to be told. Parishioners describe encounters with the ghost of a young girl who is believed to have died in the 1890s during an influenza outbreak while the building was used as a school for girls. An older woman wearing a red outfit has been seen at weddings and other church receptions and events. Muffled conversation, laughter, and the clatter of glasses and tableware is also occasionally heard. Additionally, the ghost of a lady has been seen tending the garden behind the church. So let's go through 10 through 9 real briefly, and then we'll see the top haunted uh, church in Illinois. Number 10 was Mount Pleasant Church in Claremont. Number 9 was St. Rita's Church in Chicago. Number 8 was St. John's Methodist Church in Oak Park. Number 7 was St. Benedict Church in Chicago. Number 6 was St. Terabius Church in Chicago. Number 5 was the First Methodist Church in Evanston. Number 4 was Holy Family Church in Chicago, Illinois. Number 3 was the Old First Baptist Church. That's the one that burnt to the ground. Number two was the old Irish castle, the Beverly Unitarian Church. And the number one most haunted church in Illinois. Can you guess it? <laughs> no. Well, the number one is St. James Sag Church oh, in okay. Vermont, Illinois. I've been there a couple times, but I've never been able to get in. Oh, yeah. Well, they're very protective of it because it's been vandalized many times. But there's so many different legends surrounding this place. It sits on a bluff overlooking the juncture of the Chicago Sanitarian Ship Canal and the Calumet Sag Channel, the church and cemetery of distant origins. One burial can be traced to 1818, that's the year that Illinois became a state, but the graveyard began to be heavily used in the 1830s when Father St. Sire built a log chapel to accommodate the spiritual needs of the Irish canal workers. The limestone building that exists today was built in 1850, and in the past few decades, phantom monks have made appearances here. According to Richard Crow, a police officer by the name of Herb Roberts encountered nine of these monks in the early morning hours the day after Thanksgiving in November 1977. The officer reported that the robed figures ignored him when he ordered them to stop, and they seemed to disappear as he pursued them beyond the gates of the cemetery. No monks have ever been stationed at the parish, but these sightings have led the church to be popularly known as Monk's Castle. Mm -hmm. One of Chicago's oldest ghost stories, that of a young bride in a phantom carriage, also originated here, and a former priest claimed the hillside would move on its own as if it were breathing. So quite a lot going on there. I've never been able to get into there. I've gone there numerous times, and those huge gates are always closed and locked. Yeah, I've, I've been in the cemetery several times. Well, that's what I mean, I think, trying to get in the cemetery. That's, that that whole entrance area is locked every time I go there. Oh, yeah, and they've been doing that more often lately because, unfortunately, there has been a lot of vandalism, and the church actually was robbed, I think, on a couple of occasions. That's sad. What kind of person would rob a church, my God? Yeah, I, I don't know, but some people don't have limits. I heard they had monk security guards, don't they? <laughs> <laughs> Well, one of the old legends I actually heard about the place, but I didn't include in this little blurb, was that if the monks caught you 
uh, trespassing, they would make you kneel on ball bearings. Oh, really? Are these the, these the ghost monks you mean or the real monks? Yeah, the, the ghost monks. <laughs> I don't know. That's one of the places that I've wanted to go to. I've been, I think probably three or four times, different occasions, and every single time the gates are locked. Well, uh, the first time I went there, I actually didn't know it was supposed to be haunted. We drove by. We were going around Archer Avenue just to see, you know, Resurrection Cemetery. And we drove by this church, and I thought, wow, you know, this is really cool because it's up on that hill. And when you kind of come around the street, you see it looming out of the woods. And, you know, it, it just looks like a place where a ghost story would be. Mm-hmm. That's actually all it takes, too, if it has the look. Yeah. Yeah, sometimes. So that's all you got for us this week, then. You don't have any paranormal news this week, you were telling me off air, right? All our listeners are going to be very upset with you. (laughs) (laughs) Well, hopefully they'll forgive me, but the big news item we already talked about, which was the death of Richard Crow. That's sad, too. I mean, my gosh, you know, when you think of ghost stories, you think of paranormal, anything with Chicago, Richard. I mean, you quoted Richard, what, two or three times just in this one little thing here. Oh, yeah. Uh, his, His research has really been invaluable. It's, and like I said earlier, I mean, he he was there when a lot of these stories got started. I mean, he was the original guy who put the information out there. You know what I can foresee in, uh, you know, another 5, 10, 20 years or something? The Richard Crow story goes to where, you know, if, down the line, people are going to be like, on Resurrection Cemetery, you know, we saw the outline of this man thought to be Richard <laughs> Crow. Think about it, because that's how legends start. Yeah. I bet, you know, down the line, people are going to be talking about that. Well, if anything, I I can imagine at Chet's Melody Lounge, they're going to be saying people see him coming into the bar. Mm-hmm. Isn't that, is, is that the place where Resurrection Mary's supposed to go to? Is that that place? Yeah. And I've been told that the place is haunted in its own right, that there might be other ghosts in there, but it's right across the street from Resurrection Cemetery. So Resurrection Mary was supposed to have been there a couple of times. She goes and gets a bite to eat, has a drink. <laughs> yeah. Well, the sign out front, it says, uh, eat, drink, and see Mary. Oh, that's cute. <laughs> yeah. I okay. Well, and I guess that's it for this week then. And like I said, our poor fans aren't going to get the news. They're going to be very disappointed now. Well, next week, hopefully, we'll have something really good. Well, not hopefully. Next week, we will have something really good is what you meant to say. Yes, of course. <laughs> okay. Talk to you okay. Talk to you later. We hope you enjoyed the show tonight. Once again, we'd like to pay respects to our dear friend Richard Crow, who just passed away. You can catch us from 10 to 11 on Friday nights on theedgeonair.com, or you can catch us Sunday nights at 7:30 on thresholds-radio.com. See you next week. <laughs>